0: Welcome. It is so good to be here with you. If you flip or tap your way on over to Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1, this is our teaching text today. And although I'm going to remain seated because we are filming this thing right now, if you're able, I would invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word as we receive his word as part of this rhythm of the liturgy that we enter into week after week. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. This is what we read. And he, that is Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him, again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. And if you're still standing, you can go ahead and take a seat. You know, as we, as we have our Bibles or our tablets or phones open to Mark chapter 10, stay there. Uh, in a moment, we're going to work our way through part by part, but let's first, in response to God's work, and just to assume that we may not be in a place where we're ready to receive such a word, let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are good and that Whatever these words of Jesus elicit, whatever they draw out of our hearts or evoke God, we we submit that we bring all of that to you in this moment. All of our past traumas and pains, our hopes, our expectations, we, we submit them all to you now and we ask that you, Spirit, through the word of God would lead us to Jesus, that you would help us to have space to receive your word so that we might receive it and live, so that we might receive it and find joy and peace in your presence. Amen. So, as we come to Mark today, we have another doozy, I guess you could say. I mean, if if last week was challenging talking about hell and the chopping off of limbs, this week may be one of the spaces that we've experienced the most pain in our lives. See, we're talking about divorce and marriage. And the text in front of us today is what I would call a beautifully frustrating text. And here's what I mean. Jesus' teaching on divorce is based on his vision of marriage, which is as radical today as it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus was teaching it. Essentially, that one man and one woman are to bind themselves together for one lifetime as God has bound himself to the people and descendants of Abraham ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. So when it comes to a teaching on marriage, I know, I am well aware that we bring all sorts of stuff, and because of that, we are guarded. We're, we're guarded because the fact is that some of us right now are in marriages that are in a tender spot, and we are doing all that we can to hold ourselves and the marriage together. Others of us have walked through like a grievous season of divorce, even if it was deemed a quote-unquote no-fault divorce. It's left us scared to, to trust and scarred. Maybe your hesitation is a bit different. Or you're like me, you're a child of divorce. And so a talk on divorce and marriage, it, it brings out all sorts of other stuff. It challenges us in a different way. Or perhaps you're in a different category altogether and you desire to be married, you aren't, and you simply don't want to hear another talk reminding you that you're not or that you're not ready. So we have all sorts of stuff we bring to Jesus. Fortunately, Jesus has broad shoulders. He can take it. And so I I want us to, I just want us to start right here and I, I want us to remember i want to remind us that jesus is speaking and even when his words may be challenging there are beautiful things to be had in the presence of jesus so when jesus speaks there is beauty to be had it gets complicated because jesus is after all a celibate single man (laughs) speaking to us from two thousand years ago and he's speaking to his followers about life in the kingdom of god So there's not a one-to-one correspondence but if you consider yourself a follower of jesus my encouragement don't check out but i also want to start here because if we fail to account for the baggage that we bring to topics like divorce and marriage then we might miss the beauty of jesus's words and simply be left with frustration you see church jesus is not (laughs) absent-minded the furthest thing from it. He knows our frustrations. He knows the frustrations of our hearts. He knows our deepest longings. And he also knows that he's called his followers to conceive of marriage and divorce in an entirely different way, a way that does not align to the way of the world, but rather aligns to the kingdom of God where the last is first and the first is last. But because of how heavy of a topic divorce can be, there's this draw in our hearts and our souls and our imaginations to like dive into the details, to parse out the areas where it's okay and not okay, especially in religious communities. It's like, where's the boundary marker? And so there's this draw for the boundary markers and the details. And it leads us to think about this passage in terms of our experience rather than, what's actually happening in the passage, what's unfolding in the drama, the gospel according to Mark. And, and we would do well to situate ourselves in the movement of the drama before we add our own. And so that's what we're going to attend to. So to this end, we're aware of our baggage, aware of our mixed motivations and our impulses, let us just set the scene here and, and allow Jesus to minister to us through his word by his spirit. Can we, can we do that? How's that sound to you? Okay, I'm just assuming you're saying yes. So as we set the scene, this is how the passage comes to us. First, do you remember John the Baptist? Well, if you do, and I'm hopeful that you do, I mean, we spent a good deal of time with John the Baptist, preceding Jesus's ministry. He kind of foregrounds Jesus's ministry. In fact, he's a forerunner to Jesus's ministry. And while John is absent in this passage by name, In context, he is jumping off the page. And we actually, we see this in in verse one. Uh, Turn turn there with me if you're not there yet. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verse one, we read, and he, this is Jesus, left there. Now he's up in the Galilee, the northern parts of Israel, and he's going down south and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. So this is not a throwaway detail about Jesus's travel plans or his itinerary. This is how Mark frames the subsequent interaction between Jesus and religious leaders. So if you said yes, that you do remember John the Baptist, well done. Uh, You know, that was back in Mark 6, which in our framework, that's like months ago now. Uh, But if you do remember him, do you also remember where the bulk of his ministry was? Yeah, it's right where Jesus is now, beyond the Jordan. Right in that little neck of the woods is where John was. So the verse that we just read, excuse me, the the next verse helps us make sense of the first verse. So go with me to verse two. And Pharisees came up in order to test him. Now stop right there. When the Pharisees came to Jesus, this will sound redundant, but it's important. They came with an agenda. They came to put him To the test. And they did so with this question. Check this out. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, as I was preparing for this, I read this uh, little illustration here, and I just want to share it with you. If you're going to ask, is it legal to drink at 16? Do you know what I mean? Did I need to add, is it legal to drink alcohol at 16? No, I didn't. Because in our context, we know the legal drinking age is 21 years of age. And when I ask, is it legal to drink? We understand that you don't have to be a legal age to drink water, we all need water. So there's, this is a culturally bound question. So too, with the question that the Pharisees ask Jesus, it's culturally bound. In fact, it's a contested issue. It's a, a space of debate in their time. And this is just as contested then as it is now. And we'll say more about that in a second. But why is this significant? Like, How does this initial interaction help us make sense of verse 1 and then the whole interaction together? Well, uh, with this question, the Pharisees not only thrust Jesus into a culturally tense topic, they do so knowing that this is the very controversy that led to John the Baptist losing his head. So just a quick refresher, back in Mark 6, all those months ago, John called out Herod Antipas, who's this governor of a region there, for marrying his sister-in-law, Herodias. That's his brother, Philip's wife. Yes, it is as jacked up as it sounds. Eventually, this led to John's imprisonment and eventually his beheading. This is where it gets really interesting, uh, and to stay with me here, this might feel a little nerdy, but this whole debate centered around a contested passage in what the Hebrew people would call the law, specifically the book of Deuteronomy. And here's the actual passage. This is in Deuteronomy 24, and we read this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, remember that. after she has been defiled for this is an abomination before the lord and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the lord your god is giving you for an inheritance okay that's a lot so we could say more (laughs) there's so much that could be said about this passage that we just don't have time for it certainly cuts against the grain of our modern egalitarian sensibilities When in fact, this is way ahead of its time. In fact, the provisions made here are to protect a wife in a patriarchal society. And this is often missed, but this protection for women comes out of God's heart because God is a God who has a fierce advocacy for women. In fact, we see it more fully in Jesus. He has women who support his ministry. He has women who he advocates for. He has women who are named apostles like This is a Jesus. This is a God who fiercely advocates for women. And this, in the cultural frame, is revolutionary way ahead of its time. But by Jesus' day, the contested line that I told you to pay attention to, this is where the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. It's This thing, if he, that is the husband, has found something indecent in her, or maybe your translation says, because he has found some indecency in her. Now, in Jesus' day, there's two dominant forms of thought around this contested passage, one coming from Rabbi Shammai in the school of Shammai, and one from Rabbi Hillel in the, you guessed it, school of Hillel. Now, these two schools of thought, they created this binary, one conservative and one progressive. And the more conservative, the school of Shammai, said that indecency here referred to adultery or perhaps the breaking of explicit marriage vows. There would be a dowry paid. If the husband didn't pay that, then there could be grounds to divorce, something like that. Whereas Hillel and all the apprentices or disciples of Hillel They took a more progressive approach, and they said that the indecency was any cause of dissatisfaction to the man. Just to to show how um, thin that veil of any cause was, how easy of an out it was, if you were to cook your husband a meal and he didn't like it, let's say you burnt it, that served as a grounds for divorce. So it's pretty fickle, you could say. And you know, that actually emerged as the popular view. And the Pharisees now are trying to trap Jesus between the political, or excuse me, the potential ire, like the the fear of Herod because of his response to John the Baptist and his criticism, and a crowd who, though religious in context, have grown accustomed to an escape hatch from marriage, from their marriage vows for any and every cause. It is the proverbial rock and a hard place. And the Pharisees think they have Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Go to verse three. He answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses allowed a man... Now, just stop right there. Um, there's a confusion here between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus asked what Moses commanded, and they give the permission of Moses. So this is a minor discrepancy, but it's illuminating because they're looking for the loophole. So just that, that one was for free. Let's keep reading. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, verse five, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So this is typical rabbinic discourse, and what it does is it reveals the the Pharisees' hearts that they're hard, and also it reveals that they side with Rabbi Hillel in this progressive view of marriage. See, divorce—it's not God's intent. It's a concession for people who are opposed to God. It's this space where God sees the hardness of heart and he makes a concession so that the people might have some semblance of integrity to protect the women who are there. And this is important here. See, for Jesus, the only thing that a marriage cannot survive is a hard heart. A marriage can survive sickness. It can survive loss. It could even survive the tragedy of an affair, provided that repentance, like the deep work of repentance, and then subsequent reconciliation occurs. But a heart that is closed off to another, a heart that has hardened itself to movement toward another, has actually hardened itself towards movement toward God. See, just look at how Jesus continues to make this point in verse 6. It says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. This is like divine math. Uh, one plus one equals one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. See, in this, Jesus appeals to what theologians call creational intent, and that's a bit of a technical term. But this isn't Jesus avoiding the question. Jesus is engaging the heart. He's he's drawing back to the commands. They They would have this idea that it's not just Deuteronomy that Moses inspired, but it was also Genesis. So they would see that Moses, the law of Moses, extended back to that as well. And that's what Jesus is drawing their hearts to. New Testament scholar Tom Wright, who in reflecting on Jesus's words here, kind of helped unlock something for me. He, he says this, for Jesus's comment to make sense, this is his appeal to the creational intent, for Jesus's comment to make sense, he must be offering a cure for hard-heartedness. If he's now articulating a rigorous return to the standard of Genesis, to God's original intention, he's either being hopelessly idealistic Or he believes that the coming of the kingdom will bring about a way for hearts to be softened. The fact that debates about divorce have concerned the church ever since indicates that this cure doesn't work automatically or easily. Now that's not the end of the quote, but I want to just say something there. So many, so many of us are in, like, we're in it for the quick fix. And that simply is not what happens. We, we, feel, we feel like we can come to Jesus and he does receive us. And that's great. And that, that, that that's where we have to stop. See, Jesus isn't here just to build something back better. Jesus is here to transform us, to be who we truly are, to be fully human. And, and church, that takes time. Tom Wright goes on. He says, equally, though. The fact that millions of Christians have prayed for grace to remain faithful to their marriage vows, often under great stress, and have found the way not only to survive, but to celebrate as one flesh indicates the implicit promise is true. See, we we can desire the easy way. And there's nothing insidious or evil about that. But if we think that is the way, I and mean, we are in for a rude reality check when the hardness of life continues to play itself out. So why not prepare our expectations and, and step into the reality of the brokenness that we're complicit in and that we participate in? And then, as Wright concludes here, that we would appeal to our great God and Savior, to help us make a way forward, to participate with his grace in this commitment. I just have to say, before we can actually get to the heart of this, and you may feel like, okay, Castle, what have we been doing this whole time? Well, bear with me. Before we can get to the heart of this and ask questions about marital relationships and divorce and their rightness or their wrongness, we must ask the question, what is it? mean to be human? What what is a human? What's sexuality? What's sexuality for? How how does all this stuff work? See, the shouting match that we hear in the culture wars that some of us choose to participate in over sexuality and gender, marriage and divorce, I mean, if we're honest, the the culture's really just kind of gone away from this, so the the shouting match is kind of one directional at this point. But They stem, these shouts of aggression, they stem from disagreement on the answer to these core questions of what does it mean to be human? For example, if you fully embrace Darwinian secular vision for human flourishing, if you embrace a fully secular worldview, that all of this is just a happy accident, it's it's really just about survival and pleasure, then of course marriage makes no sense. Because at this moment, we're not fighting off saber-toothed tigers. We're, We're not having to couple ourselves together so that we can get the most food and propagate and have a better tribe, all that stuff. No, no, like we're surviving. And in many, in many spaces, we're thriving. So of course marriage doesn't make sense under that paradigm. And sex, well, we don't really need to propagate because according to some, and this is highly contested, according to some, the world's overpopulated. That is a way of viewing the world. So sex, man, that's just play for consenting adults. But, it, but if that is not the true story, If that's not the true story of reality, and if there is a creator, and we're not just animals, but we bear God's image, and that we are created out of a beautiful mind to participate in the way of God's self-giving love. If we were created male and female to exist as engendered people with dignity and mutuality, And marriage is a gift from the Creator to display the goodness of a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. And if sexuality is not just play for adults, but is the place where the deepest union of souls is forged in the safety of a covenant, then what we have in Jesus's words What we have in Jesus' words is a beautifully frustrating vision for how God chose to display his selfless union with humanity, namely marriage. And this, this seems to shut down the Pharisees. When Jesus gives his explanation and appeals to the creational intent, the Pharisees go away as far as Mark's concerned, but the disciples don't you remember, Mark's described the disciples' hearts as hard as well, and they're confused about Jesus' words. In verse 10, we read this, and in the house, so now in privacy, not with the crowds, not with the Pharisees, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery adultery. Jesus's words, though challenging, are clear. So what does this mean? What if, what if you're in the space where your marriage is crumbling in front of you? Does that mean you're stuck? What, exa- yeah, what exactly does this mean for us? <laughs> like, What does it mean if you've realized that the person that you're waking up next to every day is totally different than you? What, what if you are s- starting to realize after this like, seven-year pivot point, which statistics bear out that for whatever reason, after seven years of marriage, there's like either a resolve to stay or you leave and divorce? What if you realize that, okay, at the beginning, opposites attracted, but now it's like opposites attack. What, what do we do? I, I found Frederick Bruner's words really helpful for me right here. He says this, appealing to the text, which is always helpful. <laughs> Moses, under duress, permits divorce, but Jesus, by a remarkably direct authority, commands no divorce, and Jesus is Lord. So, is this Jesus being hyperbolic? I mean, he was last week about hell, so why not here? Is Jesus serious? What about, I mean, if, if you're like me, you, you go, well, what about abuse? What about sexual immorality? What about neglect and abandonment? Doesn't Paul make provisions in 1 Corinthians 7 to, like, make a way for things like that? Well, what we see is in response to this, there are about four responses that are dominant. There's way more than four. But these are kind of the dominant responses that we see to marriage and divorce and remarriage especially with the severity that divorce can bring, the severity of the, of the severing of souls and hearts and families. Like, this is no light matter. People give lots of time to think about this, and here are the four main views on this. The most conservative, kind of working from conservative to progressive, would say that even if you're not at fault in the marriage and that you're abandoned, that remarriage is not permitted. And it's not permitted so that you might display the joy of your position in the kingdom of God. As best as I understand, this is still the, the stance of the Catholic Church. The, the next position would permit remarriage if and only if you were the victim of adultery in an affair. It's understanding that the one flesh union was severed. The third view would say that you can divorce and remarry for things in addition to adultery, like abandonment and abuse. That's 1 Corinthians 7. And lastly, maybe the most progressive of the views would say that divorce is a sin. Now, that's huge. To hear the word progressive and the naming of sin as sin, that can be a little rattling of sorts. But divorce is a sin. And God, who is rich in mercy, forgives sins. And there are still natural consequences that will play out. I just mentioned a few, the, the severing, like literally your heart being like strained because of the emotional magnitude of a breakup like that, the the rupturing of family systems, all of that. There are natural consequences that will play out whether the sin is done by you or to you. But God is compassionate, and under his compassionate reign, there's space. There's space to remarry after uh, enduring the hard work of repentance and reconciliation. Let's say that your ex-spouse will not remarry you; they won't enter into that. Then you are permitted to marry again. See, regardless of the position that you lean toward, and and here, like we don't we don't have an official stance <laughs> here at Gateway. Um, regardless of that. If I were appealing to Jesus' words again, if I were to one day wake up and and just wake up to the reality that Jessica and I are way different, which, by the way, we are. We are about as polar opposites as you can get. If I were to wake up and I were to consider that to be irreconcilable and I were to leave, and after a year or so, I decided to remarry, or maybe even after a decade, in God's eyes, according to Jesus' words here, that would be no different than going out tomorrow and having an affair. In Matthew's account of this scene, the disciples give us some comedic relief. Um, they're shocked by Jesus's words because they are shocking J- just as much now as they were then. And they, say, they basically say this, it'd be better not to marry at all. And you're like, one, that's funny. And two, they make a good point. Like the, the stakes are high. You see, Jesus' vision of marriage is so radical because it is for both us and his contemporaries. And I know that there's so much that could be said about here and, and all of the what-ifs that spring into our minds from our friends or our families or our own experiences. The, there's so much more that can be said here. And those questions are valid, but as we we close our time, I just want to remind us that when your vision of marriage is founded on the basis of covenantal love, it will always be viewed as radical. See, marriage is not a contract; it's a covenant. See, this is this is the shift, and and pay attention here. When I do marriages, I often repeat this, and so if at some point you get married by me or I. A, I do your wedding. <laughs> like you will most likely hear this line if we're talking about marriage, because it's just so shaped. This is read at my marriage, at my wedding to Jess. A contract says, I take you for me, but a covenant says I give myself to you. A contract says, you better do it. A covenant says, how may I serve you? A contract says, what do I get? A covenant says, what can I give? A contract says, I'll meet you halfway. A covenant says, I'll give you all of myself. A contract says, I have to. And a covenant says, I want to. It is a willful entry, a self-binding. It is, it is like the good type of binding. <laughs> the irony of that is in our cultural moment, any type of binding, any type of prohibition to our personal freedoms feels like a new kind of oppression. Jesus is saying that true freedom comes under the appropriate limitations. So the beauty of this lasting agreement, the beauty of a covenant, is that when we open up the scriptures, we actually have a picture of it being played out. We get to see what covenant faithfulness looks like, and we see it fully in the face of Jesus. Jesus vows these words to his bride, the church. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Marriage is not a trap. And it's also not the ultimate fulfillment of the human story. We have done a disservice in our culture and in the church by holding marriage up as an idol to be pursued, to say that true fulfillment comes through marriage, and that's simply not true. Marriage is a crucible. It is the place where formation happens that you don't expect because you're constantly being exposed to you and it is abrupt. So let, me just, let me just remind us of this. Whether you are married or not, whether we are married or not, Jesus' vow is to all of us. It is to his bride, the church, of whom we are a part So his covenant, his vows, they make space for all of us, irrespective of our marital status or our gender identity or our sexuality. They make, it makes room for all of us to be transformed into the type of people who trust, to the type of people who can be vulnerable, to the type of people who can actually love in the way of God's self-giving love. See, in Jesus, we actually see what covenant faithfulness is. We behold true integrity, true fidelity. And even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And I just want to linger here for a moment because so often the myth is that in marriages, at least as it's come to me, and I could be wrong, is that you got to get back to it. you got to ignite the flame. We have it so twisted See, we start in our culture with sex, and then we move into maybe getting to know someone. And then from there, we move into intimacy, and then we give ourselves away, maybe in marriage. Jesus flips it. He invites us instead to start with self-giving love as brothers and sisters in Christ. Then we can start having intimate relationships where the pangs of loneliness can actually be quenched, where we can know one another and be known without having to think about what sexuality has to do with intimacy in a family then we can have some more intimate relationships that extend into curiosity of like being together, getting to know someone. And maybe, maybe then with a movement toward marriage and fidelity, then consummating the movement of love and sex. But you see, we've flipped it over entirely. And so Jesus's injunction here, his warning, his, his this is for disciples of Jesus. And so whether you're married or not god is forming us to be a people of love to start with self-giving love not to not the type of love that we think of as like passionate love no this is the love that is like companionate. It's a love that is willing to see and know and experience irrespective of that neurobiological sexual response. See, that, that can happen for anyone as they see something attractive, as they see someone attractive. But do we just give ourselves to that? No. We, we guard our hearts. We, we guard our hearts because that is the place that God is after. And I say all of this because I want us to know that God's interest, that Jesus' interest is forming you and forming me more and more into his likeness so that we would be a community of self-giving love, so that we could genuinely say we are people pursuing the presence of God. That we are people genuinely praying, that we are prayerfully contending for his kingdom to come here in Des Moines as it is in heaven, and that we would join him in the renewal of all things. We are a part of that all thing formula. (laughs) We are the ones who need the kingdom. And it's Jesus's presence that makes space for us to be transformed into the type of people who live out of an ethic that gives itself away. So I know some of you are in the midst of this right now, and you are hurt. And the thing you want most in the world, I don't think it's divorce, I think it's reconciliation. And let me just remind you that you have been reconciled to God in Christ. And for those who have been reconciled to God in Christ, that means that we can be reconcilers as well. That there is a movement of grace that we who have received grace can extend grace. Does that mean that we abide by hurt and abandonment and abuse. No, no, no. We name sin as sin. We address it and, not but, and we seek repentance and reconciliation under the covering of God's compassionate love. So church, I hope, I hope that this would draw us in to the love of Christ because the covenant of marriage, it just happens to be one of the spaces that God is refining us in. Yet all of us, all of us are called to be formed into the image of Jesus. All of us are called to fidelity to our husband, to our king, Jesus. So let us appeal to him now to soften our hearts to receive his word as we respond in worship through song. Jesus, we prayed this at the beginning that we come with all of ourselves. And we pray this now that you would receive that that you would comfort us through your spirit, that your word would be the life and light that leads us along the path that we are on, that you would actually give us wisdom and that we would open up our ears, we would look and behold that the glorious face of Jesus is the light unto our path. God, I pray specifically for those in our community who are wrestling from this, not to feel condemnation, but to feel comfort and conviction, to, to feel loved and challenged. God, would would the words that you will be with us now and always be a present comfort in our time of need.